With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. That's where I started doing a lot of wedding cakes. And when you're working at a big resort, you know, they do tons of weddings. Then I left that, moved back to Baltimore so I could start playing music with my homies. I was in a band called Two Day Romance. And then I got that job as a personal chef. Then I started like the music started taking off. So then I quit the job as a personal chef. But as I'm sure you know, musicians don't make any money. And so I had to like figure out a way to pay the rent. So I was, uh, I was living in this apartment in the city and I was like, I guess I can sell wedding cakes. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Today, we talk to Duff Goldman. He's the owner and executive chef of Charm City Cakes, which has been featured on the Food Network, Iron Chef America, Oprah, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and a bunch more. And this business is successful because Duff is a rebel. Starting from his graffiti days, he has defied all the normal paths and found success that's uniquely him. And this journey starts with a family of artists. My great grandmother, like she like wove stuff on looms, eventually opened up her own hat shop. My grandmother, like she was a, uh, a silversmith and she was a photographer. My mom, she used to do uh, ceramics. So it was kind of like, you know, it's just like sort of in the family. And so they were just like waiting for me. They were like, let's see what, you know, what Duff's going to do. He's going to do something. He's obviously artistic. One day I, uh, I got home from school and I was about, I was like 14, 15, maybe. My mom uh, was like cleaning up my room because it was like a total dump, you know, and she was just like had enough of it. And like, you know, she was like, all right, I'm going to clean this place up. So she started cleaning up my room and she found, you know, those milk crates that you have like outside of, you know, like milk crates, like put like records in for a DJ. So um, she found like six of those under my bed and in my closet, completely full of spray paint. And she was like, what the hell is this? And so I got home and uh, she's like, why, why, what is with all the spray paint? And uh, I was like, okay, uh, I'm gonna tell you something, but you gotta be cool about it. We got in the car and I took her to the, there was this really cool spot that I had. It was a, there was a stream that went underneath this like kind of back road and underneath the back road were these two humongous cement walls and you couldn't, you couldn't see it from the road. And so I used to climb down there and that's where I, I spray painted. Sounds like the perfect spot. It was, it was the perfect spot. Like you could not see it from the road. You could never get busted. And so, um, you know, I started out like, just like writing my name, like, Duff, you know what I mean? And like colored it in. And then like, I just, so I started like, you know, trying stuff out and then 
I found this really dope book by this this guy named Henry Chalfant. Henry Chalfant wrote, uh, well, sort of compiled these two books. One was called Subway Art. This is the first time like an outsider, like really kind of like took notice and was like, I need to document this stuff. There's amazing art happening. And so I got these books and I basically in my little area down there, my little spot, I basically like completely ripped off every single uh, mural that was in there. This is in Northern Virginia, right? Not like a graffiti hotspot. And so like, you know, there wasn't really much for me to like sort of compare it to. So that, yeah, that was my thing. I just, you know, I really got into graffiti and then like, you know, I started like, you know, doing bigger pieces and I was like work, I, I would do stuff on like trains and subways and buses and, you know, loading docks and stuff. What did it feel like to move from the contained safety of the original spot to like the cities? What did that feel like? It was pretty scary. I think one of the things that was really cool about it was the guys that I was going with, they were all much older than me. And so I was like kind of like a younger kid. Like they all had driver's license. They had cars. Like they were like, like we did like big boy bad things. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know what I mean? There was one time... This is terrible. Uh, let me just apologize to Domino's Pizza. So we were walking down like one of the other streets in Georgetown. There was a Domino's Pizza and there's like, you know, it's like like in the city, it's a huge pane of glass, right? So all the people that are working there are like right there, you know, at the glass and you can walk by and watch them make pizza. And so we were walking by and, you know, it was like three, it's three of us, it's me, this kid, Jason, this other guy, I didn't know him that well. And um, we like stopped and we're like watching the guys and I'm just like a little kid. I'm like, yeah, look at that pizza. And then like Jason and the other guy like knock on the door and I saw them, they all went for their spray paint. So like pulled out spray paint and we tagged their window after knocking and getting their attention right in front of them. And so we like tagged and then just took off. Yeah. And then like all these pizza guys ran out. We were like, had to take off. It was really funny, but like, that's like, you know, that's bad. Like we were bad. <laughs> I mean, you're pushing the boundaries, but like, also the other thing is, I mean, I, I've bought, bought some spray paint before and it's, it's like expensive. How are you funding this, uh, artistic endeavor? So I got a job. I was 14 and a half. I got this job at uh, this place called Skolnick's Bagel Bakery, you know, cause I couldn't like ask my mom, Hey mom, like give me a hundred bucks. I need to get spray paint. You know what I mean? I started cooking, which was actually kind of nice. Like that was like, you know, my first foray into cooking. And I was like, you know, I was good at it. I loved it. It was funny. Actually, um, I was working at that place and uh, I almost got fired. And so um, every sandwich they had, like, everything was portioned out. It was like, all right, so this sandwich, you get this much meat, this much cheese, this much sauce. You know, it was like this whole thing because in a restaurant, you know, they're, they're calculating food costs, right? I was building these, like, pastrami sandwiches. And I was like, this isn't good. Like, it's not, you know, like, it's like, it's not enough pastrami, you know? And uh, so I started putting more on and so eventually they kind of caught on. Like whenever I worked, like their food costs went way up. And they were just like, what is going on? So they were watching me and they were like, oh, you're giving away the store. Like, it's like if I was getting this sandwich, like I wouldn't want like this. Is the, you know, that sandwich is, that's garbage. You know, I want a, I want a manwich. 
I really like that this is like like the the moment where your food interests meet your artistic interests because it's the food job is fueling the graffiti passion. And it's actually still kind of like that, you know, like the the bakery and you know everything that we're doing really just like it all just funds our lifestyle, you know, our like wannabe musician lifestyle. So like we can all just still be in bands. Let's talk a little bit about Charm City Cakes and how you started opening that and what that was like. I went to culinary school and I studied baking and pastry because I was working at a restaurant while I was an undergrad where the chef taught me how to bake cornbread and biscuits and I like totally fell in love with it. I was like, baking is like, this is great. I like, this is what I love to do. And I became the executive pastry chef at a ski resort called the Vale Cascade. And so that's where I started doing a lot of wedding cakes. And when you're working at a big resort, you know, they do tons of weddings. Then I left that, moved back to Baltimore so I could start playing music with my homies. I was in a band called Two Day Romance. And then I got that job as a personal chef. And I started like the music started taking off. So then I quit the job as a personal chef. But as I'm sure you know, musicians don't make any money. And so I had to like figure out a way to pay the rent. So I was uh, I was living in this apartment in the city and I was like, I guess I can sell wedding cakes. I didn't know what I was doing, so I didn't know what I didn't know. And so it was funny. So I, I uh, what I did was. I got a website, you know, this is 2002, right? I got like the, my first website kit. And so I didn't have any pictures of cakes that I had made. So I went to all these other websites and like just stole pictures, put them on my website. And then as I would get customers, like people would be like, I want that blue cake with the little dots on it. Like, okay. And then I would make it, take a picture of it and then replace the stolen picture with the picture of the cake that I made. It became legit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got there. It was funny though, because like one of the one of the cakes I had on there was from this lady. Her name was um, Colette Peters. Like back then, she was like the queen of cake decorating back then. And uh, I had one of her one of her pictures on my website, but actually a bunch of her pictures. And so my phone rings, and it's a New York number. I'm like, hello, and she's like, it's Duff Goldman there. And she's got this like kind of tough, you know, sort of voice. I'm like, yeah, this is him. She's like, oh, this is Colette Peters. And I was like, oh man, I'm fucked, right? Like, she's like, she's gonna get me. And she's like, I'm judging this contest and I saw your cakes and I think you shouldn't be in this contest. It's in Colorado. I want you to come out and do it. And I was like, oh my God, I would love to. This is amazing. She's Wait, like, was all right. She I, you know. looking at her own cakes when she said those cakes look good. The, so like, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. She's like, all right, I'm going to email you all the information and da, da, da. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, listen, Colette, I got to tell you, I'm a really big fan. She's like, I can tell by your website. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. And, but she was totally cool about it. Like she was like, you know. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, I would have been sweating. Was there a moment or was that the moment where you realized, oh, like this can actually go somewhere big not no because like when i did that thing like i came in dead last but i like totally like broke all the rules and like you know i was like i brought a welder and i like the table caught on fire and like i made a huge mess and like the the cool thing was that some of the judges also did television like food network called like hey you know do you want to do you want to like do some tv shows and i was like yeah sure like all the tv i do like it's a constant it's a constant learning process you know, like, and I think that, we, you know, one of the things that like, you know, I, I've been like, sort of, I don't know, like psychologically just sort of like dealing with for the past, like 
12 years is like my, as I, as my job shifted from like, as you know, a guy who owned a bakery, you know, and decorated cakes as a cake decorator. And I think, um, like as I've been, you know, transitioning and just doing more and more television, less and less cake decorating, you know, it, it was kind of messing me up for a while where I was really like, man, you know, like, this is what I do. Like, this is my great grandmother, you know, did things with her hands. My, my grandmother did things with her hands. My mom did things with her hands. I'm like, this is what I do. This is my craft. Um, and I was like losing it in a sense. The way I was thinking about it was that it was being taken away from me. You know what I mean? And like, that was just, that was hard for me to kind of like, I don't know, accept. And so, um, why do you have to accept that? Cause it, it's a choice, right? Cause it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. you're, you're doing this TV stuff because you enjoy a certain aspect of it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what, what is the, what is the reason that you started choosing TV more? Well, I think it, it, because television became a craft, right. And it's like, you know, like being good on television is, 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 uh, it is when I think about it and like as a craft, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, there, there are just, there's certain similarities to between like working with my hands and then working for yeah. one of these, you know what I mean? How do you feel about it now? Like you said, you were dealing with it for a while. Like, where do you think that balances? Um, one of the things that helped was like just coming to that realization, that like, you know, this is, this is like something that like you can get better at that you can sort of do and work on and, you know, and craft it, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that made it like, okay. You know, plus I still get to decorate cakes. Exactly. <laughs> <Which right>. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what are you most excited for, for the future? You know, honestly, I think um, the last show I did Duff's happy fun big time. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's really cool. It's a puppet show that we did with uh, the Jim Henson company. It's funny. I was in my apartment and I was, uh, I was baking and I was getting ready for a competition I was about to do. And I was watching Sesame street and uh, I was like watching it. I was like, you know, I feel like if somebody had like a baking show, but did it like Sesame Street, I bet it could be really cool. So I started like just thinking about this idea of like, you know, having like a, a baking show, but it was a puppet show, like a little bit like Pee-wee's Playhouse. And so I like had this idea, wrote it down and brought it to the Jim Henson company. I'm like, all right, <laughs> here's this cool show. Check it out. And they were like totally into it. They loved it. And so, um, you know, we got to make six episodes and it was one of the most amazing things I've ever done. It was so much fun. What was it like seeing the end product? It was crazy. Cause like, you know, you have this idea in your head, you know, and you're just like, okay, the sous chef is a robot made out of kitchen parts. You know, there's a sloth that lives in the ceiling. The oven is a dragon and he bakes everything in his mouth. And so I like, you know, I came up with like all these characters and then like, you know, you walk on set and like, there they are. So I'm sitting there and I'm like cooking and talking to the camera. I'm like, okay, so we're going to make this. And then like puppet here, puppet here. But like the puppeteers, like each puppet, it takes at least two people to operate. And they're laying on the floor, like contorted in all these weird, you know, positions, operating these puppets, making funny voices and ad-libbing most of it. While they're laying on the floor, looking at a TV screen, they have a feed of what the camera sees. They have like a, a monitor down there. So they're seeing what the camera sees and that's how they know like where to point and where to look and stuff. It's, it's insane. It's so cool. It's so cool. Oh, 
thoughts. Dude, this sounds like the perfect show. This sounds like the absolute perfect show. I have a, I have a question for you. So like I've been chatting to a few friends actually today about optimizing for fun in the projects that you take on and the work that you do. Um, and one of the things I was, my, I'm actually in, in Mexico living here for the next month um, and, and with a friend. Um, and he was talking about how like he was really good at day trading and then realized that it was soul sucking. And though, although he could like make money doing it, like would he want his community to be based around that? Would he want an aspect of his personality to be based around that? And then literally a couple hours later, I was talking to a friend who was asking me some advice on podcasting. And he's like, oh, I think I need to change up my show. Like, I think I was focused too much on the money initially. And I'm like, like I, I, I'm always like a big fan of just optimizing for fun. But I'm wondering like your process in coming up with shows, creating these shows and what are you optimizing for? And what are the ingredients that you're like, how is this going to feed my soul? Not like, how is it going to be viral or successful? Like also like, how do you balance that? How do you balance uh, seeking virality and success so you can sustain something that feeds your soul? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I get you. Um, you know, I think one of the things is I don't really think about that too much. I don't think about the success of something too much in the terms of like, okay, I want this many viewers. I want this many likes or this many whatever. I, like what I think of is like myself as a consumer, consumer of a television show, you know, somebody like a, a fan, a viewer, you know, I try to, and I try to sort of like think about like, you know, what do I want to see? There's a lot of things that I see nowadays and I'm like, this is garbage. And I know that like some of them are shows that have many, 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 many more viewers than I will ever have. It doesn't mean it's not garbage, you know? And so I try to make stuff that like, I know that I would like, I'd be like, this is cool. I like the show. I want to watch this. And uh, I think because I'm such a fan of television, I think that's kind of where success comes from is that, I'm like a good proxy. Like, I know, like, if I'm going to like it, like, you know, people are going to like it. Kids are going to like it. Dudes are going to like it, you know, because I'm definitely a dude. And, like, I try to, like, make shows that, like, you know, even though, like, a puppet show for little kids or, like, you know, a show about baking, you know, or, like, a stand-in stir, an actual, like, baking, you know, baking tutorial stuff. Like, I'm still a dude, and I try to, like, make it exciting, you know, for people that generally not necessarily are the kinds of people that are watching these sort of shows. From tagging city walls to causing fires at prestigious baking events, Duff has never had much regard for rules. He blazes his own trail. He doesn't care about looking like a traditional prestigious baker. That's actually his secret sauce. He's able to bring something completely unique, something uniquely Duff to the table. This pinch of magic is what led him to be a TV star, creative producer, cookbook author, and owner of Duff's Cake Mix. So be like Duff. Don't chase someone else's path. Find your own unique success. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate us five stars. Finding Founders is created and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. This episode was edited by Nicholas Guzman and Tomas Renteria. Voiceover was written by Kylie McCreary. This episode was reviewed by Adrian Tapia. See you next week.